0: We've made it to Ezekiel chapter twenty three. We're going to look at chapters twenty three and twenty four tonight. Challenging pastor scripture night, just like most of Ezekiel is, and it's it's a, it's a tough book. And I just want you to know I'm doing my best to understand it myself and teach it in a way that you understand it. But more than that, not just not just kind of understand what it means, but understand how it applies to our lives. And so. Tonight, under the three points that I have, I've I've given you some takeaways, some things I want you to take away from this, some some application uh, for your life. And so hopefully we will be able to to make that clear as we work our way um, through it. Tonight I want to talk to you about news from God. And just a reminder as to the outline, uh, there's a broad five-part outline there in your notes. It begins, the book begins chapters 1 through 3. With the prophet's call, uh, as I've said many times during this study, uh, because of God's people rebelling against him and worshipping false gods, he sent a nation, the Babylonians, to overthrow uh, the, the Jews in their homeland. And the Babylonians came in waves, and each wave they would take thousands of Jews back with them to Babylon. It's called the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian exile. And Ezekiel was a priest who was one of those taken into captivity back to Babylon. And during his time there, God called him to preach to the Jews who were there in captivity. But not only to preach to them, but to preach about the rest of the Jews who were back in Jerusalem and Judah. And so keep that in mind as we go through our uh, teaching tonight. But in chapters 1-3, through God calls Ezekiel to this prophetic ministry. The second part of the outline Uh, concerns a message of judgment for Jerusalem and Judah. That's chapters 4 through 24. So we will finish this section of the outline tonight. We're going to finish chapter 24 tonight. That's part 2 of the outline. And the next time we're together, we'll start part 3, which uh, consists of a series of messages for foreign nations. So he starts talking to the Ammonites and the Moabites and, and different nations and has messages for them as well. And then part four is a message after the fall of Jerusalem, after uh, he allowed the Babylonians to overthrow that city completely, burn it to the ground. He has a message um, for his people related to that. And then part five is a vision of restoration for his people and for really the world. And and we'll talk about that when we get there. Here's a summary statement. Say, uh, Pastor Wade, what's the book of Ezekiel about? How would you summarize it? Well, if you look there in your notes, Kendall easily says... From exile in Babylon, Ezekiel's stunning visions and startling symbolic acts, we're going to see a symbolic act tonight, were prophecies for the Israelites to teach God's sovereign plan over them in the history of his kingdom so that they shall know that I am the Lord. Even though God had allowed the Babylonians to overthrow the Jews and take them into captivity, God wanted them to know, I'm not done with you yet, and I've got some things for you to learn. But no, I'm not done with you yet. Know that I am the Lord. Even in the midst of this judgment, even in the midst of this captivity, turn to me. I'm the one you should worship. I'm the one you should trust. I'm the one you should depend on during this time. So that's a, a summary statement as to this book. And In chapters 23-24, through 24, he uh, uh, comes to the end of this message of judgment for Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judah. There are three types of news that God has for His people. Three types of news that God has for His people. First, we see troubling news. There's some troubling news. And it starts there in chapter 23. So, Look there with me, chapter 23, verse 1. Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me. That means that God came to Ezekiel and said, I've got a message for you to speak on my behalf. So the word of the Lord came to me, son of man... There were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. That's strong language. And a lot of, a lot of uh, Ezekiel's language is very strong. He's trying to get their attention. And this means that they were unfaithful to God. That's what he means by that phrase. E- even in Egypt, when they were uh, uh, under Egyptian uh, oppression and bondage, they turned to the Egyptian gods instead of turning to the one true God. So he says they are unfaithful. They played the whore in their youth, he says, uh, he says in verse 4, Oholah was the name of the elder, and Oholabah, these two sisters, uh, was the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Oholah is Samaria, and Oholabah is Jerusalem. So so the Lord uses this family imagery of two sisters to speak of the nation of Israel, to speak of the Jews. If you look there in your notes, Oholah, the first sister, this is a made-up Person, all right, that God's using to represent. Oholah represents the northern kingdom whose capital was Samaria. So, just a little bit of history about Israel. After the death of Solomon, who was uh, the son of David, king of Israel, uh, a king arose, the son of Solomon named Rehoboam. Rehoboam was an unwise king, and because he was unwise, 10 of the 12 tribes rebelled against him. When that happened, the kingdom of Israel divided into two different kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which is commonly called Israel throughout that time period. And the southern kingdom, which is referred to as Judah throughout that period. Now the northern kingdom, called Israel, had as its capital Samaria. And God calls this northern kingdom, the ten tribes that rebelled against Rehoboam, calls this kingdom Oholah. Now the word Oholah means her tent. That's what the word uh, means. And here's what he means by that. When the northern kingdom rebelled against Rehoboam and established their own kingdom, because they no longer had access to Jerusalem and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system, they began to cobble together their own religion, their own places of worship, their own priesthood. And they began to mix with their religion, uh, other religions, other pagan religions, uh, ideas and, and gods, and it was kind of the syncretistic mishmash of religion. But they had their own places of worship. They, they didn't come to Jerusalem to worship. So the word Ohola means they had their tent. They had their place where they worshiped, their own sanctuary, priesthood, idols, and shrines. But then he mentions Oholabah, and he says in verse 4, Oholabah represents Jerusalem, or the southern kingdom. Oholabah represents the southern kingdom whose capital was Jerusalem, and the name Oholabah. I mean, if by the way, if you're looking for kids' names, grandchildren, if you Oholabah, I mean, but Oholabah—it's a joke. Oholabah. If your name's Oholabah, I apologize. Um, Hopefully, there's no Oholabahs in here. But Oholabah means my tent is in her. My tent is in her. So here's what God's saying. Oholabah is the southern kingdom, Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. The, the primary place of worship is there in Jerusalem, in the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah. My tent is in her. Uh, so it speaks of God dwelling among his people there in the temple. And so he has these two sisters Oholabah, the northern kingdom, or Ahola, the northern kingdom, Oholaba, the southern kingdom. And his point is. They are both unfaithful. Now, the northern kingdom fell before the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was very, very wicked. They had I think, they had something like 17 kings and every one of them was wicked. And because of their rebellion, because they worshiped false gods, God allowed the Assyrian Empire to come and overthrow the northern kingdom. Now, that happened before the Babylonians came and overthrew the southern kingdom. So, watch this. The southern kingdom got to watch the northern kingdom being judged for their rebellion. So you would think the southern kingdom saying, hey, this is what happens when you worship false gods. It doesn't turn out well. I mean, God sends judgment. God sends nations to overthrow you. That, that's not good. You would think they would have learned their lesson. But look what it says in verse 11. Her sister Aholabah saw this, saw what happened to um, Oholah. Ahol, her sister, the southern kingdom, saw what happened to the northern kingdom, and she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. And so here's what he's saying. They saw the end result of pagan idolatry, and they should have learned their lesson, but instead of learning their lesson and turning to God, they got, they got to a place where they were even worse than the northern kingdom. They did not learn their lesson. They did not learn any lessons, if you look in your notes, from the northern kingdom's demise. They were even worse. So God eventually sent the Babylonian empire. Warren Wiersbe says this about the condition of the southern kingdom. What were their sins? Idolatry? Injustice? Unbelief? Depending on the heathen nations for help? Followed by blatant hypocrisy? They worshipped idols and killed innocent people and then marched piously into the temple to worship Jehovah. They prostituted themselves to heathen nations when, if they had trusted the Lord, he would have taken care of them and delivered them. In their idolatry, they even sacrificed their own children. They're worshipping false gods that called for them to to sacrifice their own children. They were doing it. They're worshipping Molech and killing their own children to appease this false god Named Molech. And God finally had enough. And God sent the Babylonians to overthrow Judah or the southern kingdom. And so here's what he wants them to know about Oholah and Oholabah. Specifically Oholabah. Judgment was surely coming. Look what it says in chapter 23, verse 22. Therefore, O Oholabah, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stir up against you, your lovers from whom you turn in discuss, I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians, all the Chaldeans, pecod and Shoah and Koa, and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors, commanders, all of them officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. They shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of peoples. They shall set themselves against you on every side with buckler, shield, and helmet. And I will commit the judgment to them. They shall judge you according to their judgments. Here's what God's saying. All those... All those nations around you that you are cozying up with and worshiping their gods, they're going to turn against you and they will be your enemies. I will use them as a sort of judgment. If you remember last week, remember one of the images God gave his people was of God with a drawn sword. Remember that? God with a drawn sword as if to say, judgment is coming. And here he's saying, judgment is surely coming. So, what's the takeaway from chapter 23. What's the takeaway from this, from this troubling news about Oholabah being worse than Oholah? The southern kingdom's spiritual condition being, being so depraved that God would completely overthrow them. Here's the takeaway learn spiritual lessons from others, learn spiritual lessons from others. When you see someone do something foolish and experience the consequences of that foolishness, Elijah come on to say, Hey, don't do that. Right? Don't do that. And it is the epitome of foolishness to turn your back on the living God. He is the one who is your life, your hope, your peace, your strength, your wisdom. And it is utter foolishness to turn your back on Him. The one who loves you perfectly, the one who made you, the one who knows you, the one who knows how many hairs are on your head, the one who cares about you more than anyone else to turn your back on Him is so very foolish. So when you see someone making unwise spiritual decisions and walking through the consequences of those decisions, learn from that and say, I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to experience what they're experiencing. I I want to turn to the Lord and walk with Him and worship Him and live for Him. I don't want to have to learn these same lessons the hard way. Learn spiritual lessons from others. In fact, you may wonder, why is there so much detail about the Jews and their ongoing cycles of rebellion in the Old Testament? I mean, there's just so much information. Just keep reading, it's like page after page. 1 Corinthians 10 says, it's for us to learn from. It's for us to say, you know what? We shouldn't be like that. We we shouldn't turn to false gods. We shouldn't trust other people or other things. We should should keep our focus on God and worship and follow Him alone. So learn spiritual lessons from others. The southern kingdom did not learn from what they saw happen in the northern kingdom. Oholaba did not learn from Ohola. And both of those kingdoms were very unfaithful to God. Number two, not only is there troubling news, there is breaking news. Breaking news. Living in the cable news cycle that we live in today, you know what that's like. The banner comes on, whatever your favorite channel is. Breaking news, and what happens? You kind of sit up and you kind of lean forward. What are they about to say? What what's going to happen? Of, uh, of 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 import here. In fact, I remember. I don't know why I remember this, but one of my one of my memories from childhood is uh, we were we were watching something on TV and this was before all the cable news stuff we were just watching one of the, the channels and all of a sudden President Reagan broke in and he was sitting there in the Oval Office and he began to explain why they were shooting cruise missiles at Libya and Gaddafi you remember that? And even as a little guy, I remember, oh, this is something important. I mean, we broke into the we broke into the, the, the show, and he's explaining some things about what's happening uh, with our nation and our enemies. And and, uh, and and so God here in chapter 24 has some breaking news, some breaking news uh, for his people. And here it is in a nutshell: Ezekiel announced that the judgment of God had begun. So, chapters 1 through 23, he's saying, It's coming. Judgment is coming. I have a drawn sword. It's going to happen. You've crossed a line. You won't turn to me. You're unfaithful. You won't listen. You're hard-hearted. You're stubborn. Judgment's coming. But now in chapter 24, the Lord wants to say through Ezekiel, the judgment of God is here. Look what it says in chapter 24, verse 1. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. So he's saying, as you preach here in Babylon, just know that Nebuchadnezzar is over there in your homeland, and he is attacking Jerusalem on this very day. Breaking news, the attack has started. The judgment has come. There's no turning back. God is wielding Babylon as an instrument of judgment against the remaining Jews in Judah and in Jerusalem. Uh, The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them... Now he's going to give them a a word picture to, to help them understand what's going on here. Thus says the Lord God, Set on the pot, set it on, pour in water also, put in the pieces of meat, all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder... Fill it with choice bones, take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well, see also its bones in it. Now some scholars believe that he's telling Ezekiel here to actually put a boiling pot of water on and put meat in there. Some people think it's just a, a, a word picture that's spoken. We don't know exactly. Based upon the rest of the book of Ezekiel, he's probably actually putting a boiling pot on, and there's this, this, you know, this, this visual picture for them to see. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed in her midst, she put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust, to rouse my wrath, to take vengeance. I've set on the bare rock, the blood she has shed, that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord, God, woe to the bloody city. They've been, oppres- uh, they've been a city of oppression to others, violence, mistreating others. I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices, let the bones be burned up. Uh, then set it empty upon the coals that it may become hot and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in it, its corrosion consumed. So probably the boiling pot pictures Israel. The meat in the middle pictures the people of Israel. And the corrosion pictures the spiritual condition of Israel. So Israel's like a, or the Jews there in Judah. It, it, it's like a boiling pot... That is corrosive. Everything in the pot is, is uh, tainted because of the corrosion in the pot. And notice the pot's boiling. This is probably a picture of God's judgment. And so this cooking pot imagery was meant to convey the judgment of God has come against His spiritually unclean people and it will be devastating. Christopher J.H. Wright says this, The message of the cooking pot then was unmistakable. Not only were the inhabitants of Jerusalem to be cast out or cremated with no regard for rank or status, the city itself was so corrupt that the only fate that was now appropriate for it was all-consuming meltdown of final destruction. The fire had been lit, said Ezekiel, this very day. So the boiling picture is the fire of judgment. And by the way, there was literal fire when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem in 586 BC this very day that Ezekiel says they burned the temple down they burned other buildings down they burned the walls down I mean they they used fire as an act of destruction so this is breaking news now remember this is before the days of cable news networks and satellites and cell phones and any of that and so when When Ezekiel says, this very day, the judgment has begun. This very day, Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar is attacking Jerusalem. The people would say, well, how do we know that? Like, how do we know that's what's happening? So God's going to give them an indicator that this is really happening. God highlighted the truthfulness of this news by making Ezekiel mute. Fast forward to the end of chapter 24. Look what it says in verse 25. As for you, son of man, surely on the day when I take uh, from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire, also their sons and daughters, on that day a fugitive will come to you to report to you the news. So he's saying there's coming a day soon where someone's going to escape from the destruction that Nebuchadnezzar will bring. He's going to come to the Jews in exile, in captivity, in Babylon, and tell you about this. And he says, on that day... Your mouth will be open to the fugitive, and you shall speak and no longer be mute. So you, your muteness, will be a sign for them, and they will know that I am the Lord. So that implies that after Ezekiel says, This very day Nebuchadnezzar is attacking Jerusalem, God made him mute. He couldn't talk anymore. And he would not be able to talk until a fugitive showed up. And said, gather around, gather around. I just escaped Jerusalem. And the Babylonians burned it to the ground. The temple is gone. The walls are gone. It's destroyed. And when that happened, when someone came to report the the veracity of this announcement, then Ezekiel would be able to talk again. So his muteness was an indicator. Hey, this is really happening. And when someone comes and tells you it really happened, you're going to know that I... Uh, always speak what is true. So, breaking news. The day of judgment has begun. Now what's the takeaway? What do we need to take from this? You and I should be warned that once judgment begins, there's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. I'm going to talk about the appropriate response when judgment comes in just a few moments. There is a way we can respond. But when God decides to, to send His judgment against an individual, against a, uh, a family, against a church, against a, a nation, when, 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 when people turn their back to Him and God decides to, to show His power and get their attention and God sends judgment, there's no saying, hey, can we stop this God? It's too late. You've crossed the line. You've, you've ignored His warnings. You've ignored His truth. And once judgment begins, there is no stopping it. That is the takeaway, and certainly, listen, certainly, there are eternal implications to this. because the Bible teaches if someone dies without Jesus, if someone dies and they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, never experiences salvation, never experiences his forgiveness, then they will spend eternity in judgment in that awful place called hell. And when that happens, when someone steps out of this life and goes to an eternity of separation from God, it's too late. There's no changing things. God tells us, turn to me. I love you. I'll save you. I'll forgive you. Don't step into eternity unsaved when I want to save you because if you step into eternity unsaved, it's too late. There's no second chances, no, re- no redos, no do-overs. It's too late. Judgment is It's going to happen, and it will happen for eternity. And so, that's a takeaway. Be warned that once judgment begins, there is no stopping it. But third and last, there's some heartbreaking news. There's troubling news and breaking news, but third and last, there's some heartbreaking news. And it involves Ezekiel in his personal life. Look what happens in verse 15 of chapter 24. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban, put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning. The evening, my wife died. On the next morning, I did as I was commanded. Now this is this is this is hard. This is this is heavy. Here is what the Lord says. Your wife's about to die. And it calls her here the delight of his eyes. He loved his wife, treasured his wife. And he says, when she dies, I don't want you to mourn in any public way. I don't want you shedding tears or wailing. I don't want you eating the food that people bring to your house, the, the morning bread. You know, they, br- they bring you food and, and to try to comfort you. I want you to wash your face, put on your turban, and do not mourn. You say, that is really, really uh, tough. I mean, why would God tell Ezekiel, don't publicly mourn the death of your wife? I mean, this is really heavy. Well, if you look there in your notes, the fact that Ezekiel displayed no grief was intended to get the people's attention. Because look what it says down in verse 24. Thus shall Ezekiel, his lack of mourning, the loss of something very precious, someone very precious. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign according to all that he has done you shall do. When this comes you shall know that I am the Lord God. So the fact that he's not mourning publicly over the loss of his wife was meant to be a sign to get the people's attention. Okay, There's a a reason behind this this sermon that he's going to preach by not mourning. So wait, what is the lesson? Why did he want to get the people's attention? Just as Ezekiel's wife was the joy of his life, look what it says in verse 16, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes, verse 16, the temple was the joy of the Jewish people. Look in verse 21. Use the same language. Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, the yearning of your soul. Same kind of language. So just like Ezekiel, Loves his wife. She's his desire. Oh, you people, you Jewish people, you are so proud of the temple. It is the desire of your eyes. You feel a similar way. So you're about to lose something very precious when Nebuchadnezzar levels the temple. Just like Ezekiel lost his wife, you're about to lose the temple. That's the point that he's making. And just as Ezekiel did not publicly mourn, the people were commanded not to publicly mourn. He says, don't cry, don't wail, don't go through the outward public motions of mourning. And look what he says to the people in verse 22. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. This shall Ezekiel be to you a sign. Here's what God's saying just like I commanded my prophet not to mourn when he lost the desire of his eyes his wife I'm commanding you as a people not to mourn when you lose the desire of your eyes the temple everybody see that the parallel there now here's the question why did god why did god not want his people to mourn the temple why did he want them to to, to stoically face the reality that their temple was destroyed. Why do you use Ezekiel as this object lesson of stoically facing the loss of something very, very precious? The call to forego mourning was meant to convey that they deserve the judgment, which is a precursor to repentance. i said say it again. The call to forego. Mourning was meant to convey that they deserve the judgment, which is a precursor to repentance. So, in other words, when they hear about the destruction of Jerusalem, they couldn't say, That's not fair. They would have to say, God's told us it's coming. He's told us to repent. He's told us to get right with Him when we haven't. And so, we have to stoically face this moment and take ownership and say, It's our fault. We did not heed God. And that owner, listen, that taking of spiritual ownership is the necessary requirement or precursor to repentance, to getting right with God. Or let me say it like this if if you're not, if God is not your number one priority, if He's not first in your life, you'll never get right with Him if you don't recognize, you know what? Things are not like they ought to be in my life. He's not my number one priority. I'm not not living for the Lord. I'm not seeking Him. I'm not not pursuing Him. Take ownership. I'm not where I need to be spiritually. Because when you take ownership in that moment, then you're ready to say, I'm I'm ready to turn and turn to God and and follow Him anew and afresh. But that spiritual ownership is so very important if you're going to truly repent, turn from your ways, and turn to God. The living God. So when God sends hardship in your life to get your attention, how many of you ever had something happen in your life and it got your attention spiritually speaking? Raise your hand. Remember that happen? That's God's grace. That's God's grace. To allow something hard to get your attention so you get on the right, the right path, that's God's grace. And when that happens, when something hard happens to get your attention and you know you're not where you need to be spiritually, take ownership and say, Okay, God, I'm listening. You got my attention. I'm not where I need to be. But I'm not going to waste this hardship. I'm going to to let you get a hold of my heart. I'm going to turn from the path I'm going down. That's what repentance is. I'm going to turn back to you. That makes sense? So that's why I didn't want him to mourn. He wanted them to stoically say, Yeah, we should have have seen this coming. God's been very, very clear and, and very Very direct. Let me hold your place there, real quick, but turn to Luke chapter 13. I want to show you this Luke chapter 13 about repentance and disaster. New Testament book of Luke. This is the ministry of Jesus. There was some president at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, Pilate had carried out a political uh, act to put down a rebellion among the Galileans and and many of the Jews in Galilee were killed by Pilate, this military action. So they come to Jesus to ask him about it. Hardship has hit our nation. And here's how Jesus answers in verse 2. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus mentions another disaster. Look in verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here's what Jesus is saying. When you see something... Hard and difficult and destructive. And you see people going through very difficult times. Learn the lesson. Learn the lesson that, hey, I need to be right with God. Let those hard things get your attention. Let things like devastating hurricanes get your attention. And overwhelming floods and pandemics and those things that happen in our lives that are hard, let them get your attention to make sure that make sure that as you walk through this life, you are living for Jesus and not living according to wrong priorities. So look at your takeaway under heartbreaking news. And this is where we end with a message of hope, because this is the end of the message to Judah and Jerusalem. It's, it's been tough. Let the pain of spiritual failure lead you to spiritual renewal. Let the pain of spiritual failure lead you to spiritual renewal. There is not one verse in the Bible that indicates that God will refuse repentance. If we repent and turn to Him, He will embrace us and heal us and restore us, but we've got to repent. Over in James chapter 4, it says, If we draw near to God, guess what? He draws near to us. And so if you ever find yourself in a a season of life and it's marked by spiritual failure, you're not living for the Lord. Things are not like they ought to be. Jesus is not your focus. You're just going through the motions. You're dry, you're stagnant, you're in spiritual neutral. If you ever find yourself like that, then say, you know what, this is not where I want to be. Let God get your attention and turn to Him anew and afresh. And you can't imagine the healing power of the Spirit of God which will pick you up and put you back on your feet and get you back in the game serving King Jesus. Amen? Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.